Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of England, episode 78, The Crisis in Wales. We heard last week about how Edward quickly re-established effective royal government, and the royal finances. The latter was particularly important, because he's about to start spending all that lovely lolly. So this week and next, we're going to be talking about the conquest of Wales. So, let's say you're sitting in an inn somewhere in London, Edinburgh or Aberystwyth in 1272. You're sitting next to your mates, each nursing a pot of ale. It's likely, I guess, in this scenario, that you'd have to be a bloke, since if you were a woman, you'd probably have to be doing something practical, but I'm not sure. Anyway, male or female, there you are. Your companion turns to you and says, Now then, which king or prince... Alexander, King of Scotland, Flewellen, Prince of Wales, or Edward, King of England, do we reckon is most likely to start a war and try to conquer himself a bit of land? Sitting here in 2012, you might assume that the answer would obviously be Edward. After all, surely it's the perfidious and aggressive English that have robbed the Scots and Welsh of their birthright. Well, that could be right in the long run, though of course extremely arguable. But in 1272, if recent form was anything to go by, your money would not have been on Edward. Alexander of Scotland had been doing a bit of conquering in the Western Islands. Flewellen had been extending his Welsh realms at the expense of the English. No, it was Edward who would have been first in line for the Nobel Peace Prize. 
Now, when we get to all the stuff about Scotland, it's reasonably difficult to find any legs for Edward to stand on when it comes to apportioning blame for the crisis. Though even then, he's not completely legless, it has to be said. But it seems reasonably clear that Edward had no intention whatsoever of conquering Wales in the 1270s. The thought hadn't even crossed his mind. It would probably help to recap a bit, and incidentally, for this episode, there are all manner of places and castles mentioned, so there is a map. Also, since castles come into this a lot, and I mean a lot, there are a couple of excellent websites built by individuals that are great for castles, both in Wales and generally, and I've put links on the History of England website. Now, there is one particular topic in history that has always confused me. There are so many topics in other subjects that have always confused me in so many walks of life. Physics in particular, I think I should note. But in history, it's just this thing about nationalism. I think I've brought this up before. According to your professional historian, nationalism doesn't exist until the 19th century and is not to be confused at any cost with patriotism. Well, it confuses the life out of me. But with apologies to all you proper historians out there, The conquest of Wales in the late 13th century by the King of England was seen as a national disaster. Let's not beat about the bush. A national disaster. It's just like the Norman Conquest. Gentle listeners, I have to tell you that the pain of the Norman Conquest of 1066 lives daily in my heart, even now. So Lord knows what it must have been like at the time. And so it was for the Welsh. One Welsh poet cried, Is it the end of the world? And, O God, that the sea would drown the land. Another Welsh chronicler wrote, And then all Wales was cast down to the ground. Now, if you are an insensitive Englishman, you could take the view that this level of despair is all a bit confusing. I mean, it's not as though the Welsh hadn't had the time to prepare themselves, mentally and emotionally, for the event. Since the 11th century, the Normans had been encroaching on Welsh lands and now largely owned southern Wales, and had done for a while. Also, the Welsh princes of Powys and Gwynedd and de Hubarth had become part of a marcher community that was much more intermingled than it used to be, with intermarriage and shifting alliances that often included Welsh and English against Welsh or English, as much as Welsh against English, or even Welsh who thought of themselves as English against English who thought of themselves as Welsh. I think that's clear. Well, one of the reasons it was particularly painful is that in 1270 the concept of a united Wales had actually been achieved. Two Welsh princes, two Clewellans, had played their cards superbly. Firstly, let's just remind ourselves that Wales at this time wasn't a united country as it is now. Despite the fact that much of de Hubarth in southern Wales had been swallowed up by the English marchers, you still have the Kingdom of Powys in the east, centred on a place now called Welshpool, and the Kingdom of Gwynedd in the north and west. Plus, given the Welsh tradition of dividing up land between sons, new lordships tend to appear from each region. So one of the perpetual problems had always been that Wales hadn't presented a united front in the face of pressure from the marcher lords. But from 1215, England had been going through a deal of turmoil, as you know. 
This gave the Welsh leaders an opportunity, and as it happens, had coincided with some outstanding leaders. First we'd had Llywelyn the Great, who from 1218 to 1240 had played the shifting marcher alliances and English kings like a harpist. Ascendant one day, down the next, but always seeming to come out top. A feature of Llywelyn the Great was that he knew when to push and when to back off. In 1218, at the Treaty of Worcester, Llywelyn had basically gained most of what he wanted. Henry III recognised his right to have the homage of all the other Welsh lords. Llywelyn would in turn do homage to the English king. But Llywelyn's subtlety is shown by the fact that he didn't push for the title Prince of Wales. He recognised it was too early and would cause him problems. Llywelyn had also adopted the Norman technique of castle building, Though everyone tends to focus on the castles Edward built, really there are many far more interesting, if not quite as well-preserved castles all over Wales. A group of them were built by Llywelyn at strategic points in his kingdom. The castles like Deganwy, Beer, Cricketh and Dolwythelen were built both to control his own kingdom and to guard its borders. Llywelyn tried really hard to make sure there was an easy transition of power rather than the traditional bun fight. And partially he succeeded, but to cut a long story short, his successor Dafid had to accept greater restrictions on his power from Henry III, and unfortunately died childless in 1246. Which brings us to the rather gloomily named Llywelyn the Last. Name-wise, a bit of a plot spoiler. His father was Griffith, Dafid's older brother, who had been excluded from the succession by Llywelyn the Great, Griffith had died trying to escape from the Tower of London and had had four sons, Owen, Llewellyn, Daffid and Rodri. What then followed was the reasonably traditional struggle between brothers to see who would come out top, a process actively encouraged by Henry. But at the Battle of Bryn Derwin in 1255, the answer turned out to be Llewellyn. And for the next 20 years, Llewellyn conducted a brilliant series of campaigns and political manoeuvres. In particular, in 1265, he captured Harwarden Castle in a crucial area called the Four Cantrefs in northeast of Wales, and in 1266 defeated the powerful marcher lord Roger Mortimer, he of de Montfort Head and Testicles fame. Which brings us to 1267 and the crucial Treaty of Montgomery. Henry and Edward were in a weak position. Yes, they'd finally got rid of de Montfort, but there were rebellions kicking off all over the place, so their priority had to be England. Llewellyn had them over a barrel, and so they came to terms. Pretty much everything about the treaty was a triumph for Llewellyn. It was confirmed that he could keep his substantial personal conquests in south-east Wales. It was confirmed that all the lords of other Welsh kingdoms should give their homage to him rather than the English king. It was confirmed that he would be termed Prince of Wales. Llewellyn would have gone home and thrown a whopper of a party. He had essentially got all he wanted and probably expected to live happily ever after. But embedded in the deal were all the elements that would bring him down. Not that this was inevitable, you understand, but with 2020 hindsight, you can see the seeds of disaster were all there. Firstly, some of his fellow Welsh lords were far from delighted at the deal, 
So there are a lot of influential Welshmen wandering around who have very questionable loyalty to the new Prince of Wales. Included in this group were the far from convinced this was a good idea Lord of Powys Winwinwin, a man called Griffith Ap Gwynwynwyn. Another was Meredith Ap Rees, Lord of the remains of the southern Welsh kingdom of Dehubarth. And then there were all these brothers floating around. Keep your eyes on Daffid in particular. He'd tried to oust his brother in 1263, but after the Treaty of Montgomery, he'd gone back to his brother. But if you catch him when he's not looking, he's looking shifty and more than a bit surly. Personally, I wouldn't trust him. Secondly, the Treaty of Montgomery is a little vague about exactly who owes Llewellyn homage and who doesn't, and what exactly he owns and what he doesn't, especially in the southern part of Wales. So plenty of potential for conflict there then. And finally, the Treaty of Montgomery was conditional on Llewellyn paying the Crown 25,000 marks plus another 5,000 marks if he wanted to take on the homage of Meredith Ap Rees as well. And the answer to the second question was, do bears poo in the forest? 30,000 marks was well beyond Llewellyn's means, though he agreed to pay back £2,000 a year. Now, a generous modern estimate might put his income at £6,000 a year, which meant that one-third would have to go to England every year. This put absolutely massive demands on his new principality and forced him to behave in ways that did not make him any more popular, as he tried to extort the amount of money he needed. This gives us a chance to talk about Wales, its topography and economy a bit, because all of this gave Llewellyn both problems and opportunities. I'm sure, by the way, that I've done this before, but as my powers decline with age, the first one to go seems to be my memory, so if you already have a map of the medieval Welsh kingdoms in your head, just zone out for a minute. If you want a stunningly beautiful place to visit with the most amazing range of natural beauty, head for Wales. You may need to take your waterproofs with you, but really. And, on the occasional subject of great walks, by the way, Offa's Dyke is a triumph. The Welsh have always known this, of course. Here's a quote from a Welsh poet who just happened to be Llewellyn's great-great-grandfather, Huel Ap Owen Gwyneth. And by the way, could I just apologise for the murdering of Welsh names that's going on here. But anyway, here we go. I love its beaches and mountains, its castle near the woods and its fine lands, its water meadows and its valleys, its white gulls and its lovely women. All of which is great, and I've put the full poem called Exaltation on the website, by the way. But if you're trying to pay off a big fine in times when tourism is not a highly developed industry, it's actually not that helpful. Travel and communication was very difficult. The amount of fertile arable land was limited. Llewellyn himself complained of, and I quote, barren and uncultivated land due to him by hereditary right. There are no towns to speak of, and Llewellyn's total customs dues amounted to £17 a year. Yep, that's £17 a year. The long and short is that the Welsh economy was very undeveloped. It did have its strong points. More than one English invasion had broken on the rock of Snowdonia, where the Welsh could retreat into highland. But there was a kicker to this strategy. Doing so meant abandoning the main area of fertile arable land, i.e. the island of Anglesey and the area of Llyn. 
and once forced into that position, the Prince of Gwyneth had a choice of submission or eventual starvation. We should mention another area that's very much at the centre of this dispute, an area called the Four Cantrefs. The area is in the north of Wales, between Snowdonia and the coast, between the rivers Conwy and Dee. It's particularly crucial because it's the gateway to Anglesey, and because it's one of the areas that Llewellyn had managed to take back from the English. So, between 1267 and 1274, Llewellyn had his problems. It would be useful to say a word about the cultural attitudes between English and Welsh. Essentially, the relationship between England and Wales and England and Scotland on the eve of the Edwardian Wars was very different. We'll talk more about Scotland in a future episode, but actually there was a great affinity at this time between those two nations. And the events of the 13th century came as something of a bombshell on a relationship that up to then had been pretty good. This was very different to English attitudes towards the Welsh. As far as the English was concerned, by the 13th century the Welsh had once more fallen back into the barbarian category. Welsh law and cultural practices such as inheritance were very different. Life on the marches was one of constant violence. The practices of the Welsh church were viewed with some horror by the English church. Essentially, there was little sense of brotherhood. Wales was without doubt a strange and foreign place to the English. It's against this background that Llewellyn tried to run his new kingdom, and the trouble started almost immediately. In 1268, problems were caused by the vagary within the treaty. Our old friend Gilbert de Clare pushed into some of the disputed lands in southern Wales, and started building a new castle, Caffilly. Now, you might think this shouldn't be a problem. After all, Llewellyn is a prince, and Gilbert is just a poxy earl. So surely Llewellyn would just march down there with his army, give Gilly a punch in the nose, and that would be that problem solved. But I refer you to the comments earlier about Llewellyn's income. In fact, de Clare's income was probably about the same as Llewellyn's, so dealing with this English nibbling of his extremities was not a simple matter, and there are a few Celts who like to have the English nibbling at their extremities. However, in 1270, Llewellyn did indeed strike back with force, and succeed in destroying the partly built castle. But within a year de Clare was back and started building and nibbling again. This time, Llewellyn wasn't able to stop him and by 1273 it was clear that he'd lost this particular struggle. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. However, 
During this early period, he did manage to impose himself on the Welsh lords and get them to accept his overlordship, but don't get the wrong impression. This wasn't a happy process. Allegiance was often ensured by hostages, threats of fines, forfeiture and imprisonment. And then in 1274, he discovered a plot by Griffith ap Gwynwynwyn and Llewellyn's delightful brother Daffid. After 1255, when Llewellyn became Prince of Gwyneth, he'd been pretty decent to Daffid. He'd brought him back to court after a year and given him some land. Despite this, in 1263, Daffid joined Henry against his brother and yet again was later restored to Llewellyn's favour. And then darn me, if in 1274 there isn't this new plot. Initially, Llewellyn let them both off, although he made Griffith beg for mercy on his knees, which can't have been great. But then he found out that the plan had not just been independence for Powys, it had also been death for Llewellyn. Thanks, brother. So Llewellyn booted them out, and they fled to England to the safety of the English court, and Llewellyn took over southern Powys directly. By this time also, Llewellyn was struggling with the repayment plan, and in fact, he'd got to about 12,000 quid, and then in 1270 he stopped. By this time, Edward was in Outremer, and it was the regency Llewellyn had to deal with, a regency which included, as it happens, people like Roger Mortimer, a man with no reason whatsoever to give Llewellyn an easy time of it. A great example of the kind of problem that hit him came in 1273 in the border area of Brecon. Under the Treaty of Montgomery, it now belonged to Llewellyn, which was very upsetting to a certain Humphrey de Bohun, Earl of Hereford, who had held it before him. So our Humph went to the Regency and asked for a clarification, and they came up with the harebrained claim that while all the land did indeed belong to Llewellyn, there was absolutely no mention of the castles. So ha! Humph could hang on to the castles. It's not just that this claim is patently absurd, or indeed that such an arrangement would make a nonsense of any real control over the territory by Wales. It's also that Llewellyn could clearly see he wasn't going to be getting any real justice until Edward came home. And at this point, the whole thing wasn't a dispute between Llewellyn and Edward. Llewellyn felt he had a good relationship with Edward. Edward had visited in 1267 and again in 69, and after the second visit, the letters from Llewellyn to Henry had talked of how delightful the visit had been. When Edward left for Outremer, Henry's letters talk in terms of friendship between Edward and the prince. So in Llewellyn's mind, a lot of these problems he was experiencing were at least partly due to Edward's absence. Edward wasn't part of the problem. To take another example, in 1273, Llewellyn was building a castle at Dolforwyn, close to Montgomery. This didn't make the local marcher lord, Roger Mortimer, happy, since he was also building his own castle. So, Llewellyn received a letter in the absent Edward's name ordering him to stop building his one. Llewellyn's reply demonstrates both his confidence in his status and also his confidence that his relationship with Edward was secure at this point. Here are a couple of lines from his response. We have received letters in your Majesty's name, but we were sure they did not have your consent. And then again, if you were present in your kingdom as we hope, such an order would not have been sent. Llewellyn clearly saw that the Regency was malicious and biased against him, so he's waiting for Edward to return to have things put right. 
and for example, when he was summoned by the Regency Council to pay the required homage to Edward, Llewellyn refused. And the evidence is that when the news reached Edward, he also felt pretty relaxed about the situation, and was in fact ordering his marcher lords to stop disturbing Llewellyn. Edward's motivation is probably that he's desperately short of money still, and doesn't want Llewellyn to have an excuse not to continue his repayments. But still, as far as he's concerned, his worldview still has Llewellyn firmly in it. He had no intention at this stage of invading Wales, let alone conquering the place. And despite this raft of difficulties, in 1274, Llewellyn was at the height of his power, and a player of genuine magnitude. So, for example, we have a chronicler's report of a visit this great prince made that year to Dolphorwyn. Was he going to build a castle and visit Clun, wondered the chronicler, had he summoned the great men of England to meet him. And meanwhile, all the bailiffs of Wales spent three weeks preparing for the visit, making sure the stocks of supplies were all assembled and ready. This was the visit of a great prince. The relationship between Edward and Llewellyn does then begin to reflect the strain between Llewellyn and the Marcher Lords. And it's Llewellyn who pushes it. And for once, he really begins to play his cards rather poorly. Maybe by this stage he'd begun to believe his own publicity and forget the realities of power. So without doubt, although he made exaggerated claims to the contrary, Llewellyn was finding it impossible to raise the money he owed Edward and used the problems with Mortimer and de Clare to stop making his repayments. If the English weren't abiding by the treaty, then nor would he. He might have been better to have had a proper discussion with Edward, who had a history of allowing other lords who owed him cash to repay at different rates. Something could have been worked out. Worse, in 1274, Llewellyn was invited to Edward's coronation and turned it down. Now this is an obvious and dangerous snub. He used the excuse that he didn't feel safe, but the truth was that he was beginning to link the question of homage with his grievances against the marcher lords and the impossibility of making the repayments according to the agreed schedule. Nonetheless, Edward remained at this stage very placatory and again clearly had no ambitions towards conquest. He actually travelled north to Chester in the summer of 1275 expressly so that Llewellyn could pay him homage. This was actually mighty good of Edward. He really could have taken a harder line after the snub of his coronation and nobody was arguing that this homage wasn't due to him. Llewellyn would have known this. He hovered around on the Welsh border, dithering, trying to decide what to do and then didn't turn up. Bad move. I mean, really bad move. This is without doubt dissing the crown. Edward upsticks and returns south in a fury. Later he wrote to the Pope and this pretty clearly describes his feelings. In order to receive his homage and fealty, we so demeaned our royal dignity as to travel to the confines of his lands. Now, you might say that Edward shouldn't be up himself so much, but that was the way it worked. Llewellyn knew precisely what he was doing. He calculated that he'd faced down the English before and was feeling outraged about the marcher lords with some justice. But the evidence is that he could have worked this through with Edward. The route he took was nutty. Still, the final bridge wasn't burnt. Edward wouldn't come north again, but he did keep telling his marcher lords not to cause any trouble. And then Llewellyn took the last bridge, 
piled faggots around it, poured as many inflammable oils onto the kindling as he could find, and let the final bridge burn for all it was worth. Because he decided to get married. From a world of possible options, who did he choose? He chose Eleanor de Montford, daughter of Edward's Bette Noir. For 70 years, in the words of Kenny Rogers, the rulers of Gwyneth had known when to hold up and know when to fold up. Now, suddenly, they'd lost their knack and would pay dearly, and the money would be taken from the table. As it happens, Eleanor's boat was intercepted by the English and she was imprisoned at Windsor, and her brother, Ormery, was taken to Corfe Castle. Edward was again livid. Now he began to encourage his marcher mates to do their worst, and he sent a final summons to Clewellyn to appear at Westminster in April 1276 to do homage. Or else. But now Clewellyn was committed. He refused to appear. He kept writing, trying to persuade Edward that he was just misunderstood, but all this supplication came with accompanying demands. Not that demanding the release of your fiancé is necessarily unreasonable, you understand, but Clewellyn knew darned well it wasn't as simple as this. As 1277 approached then, Clewellyn knew he'd provoked a fight, and thought he could last the English out as he'd done before. His army was in better shape than any Welsh prince had ever had. He could field a core group of many hundred well-armoured and mounted knights, the Chulu. He could field several thousand, maybe as many as ten thousand, footmen. But in Edward he faced a very different proposition to Henry. The attack in January 1277 came on three fronts. Mortimer attacked in the middle march from Montgomery, heading for the Welsh castle of Delforwyn. Another army attacked from the south, and in the north the Earl of Warwick attacked with Dufford. It really didn't take long. In many cases, Llewellyn reaped as he had sown, as Welsh lords fled his tyranny and joined the invaders. Huel at Murrig, for example, led 2,700 Welsh foot soldiers into the English army. Meredith ap Rees joined Edward's side in April. Griffith ap Gwynwynwyn was soon back in Powys, and despite concentrating his forces in the middle march against Mortimer, by May, Llewellyn was already pinned back into the heartland of Gwyneth. In July, Edward joined the feudal host in Worcester. The plan for the attack on Gwyneth was for a two-pronged attack, from the south to be led by Edmund of Lancaster, Edward's brother, and in the north from Chester, led by Edward himself. From the south, Edmund made quick progress, and by the end of July was at Aberystwyth, founding a new royal castle and hemming Llewellyn in. In the north, the army in August was over 15,000 strong. Preparation was intense and thorough, and the army set out from Flint on the 18th of August, led by an army of 1,800 woodmen who cleared the way through the northern forests. Meanwhile, behind the lines, a fleet of 26 ships appeared off the shore of Anglesey, and an army of 2,000 occupied it. The old trap was now shut. As the harvest time passed, Llewellyn was cut off from his food supply and faced the same old choice, surrender or starve in his mountains. By September, Edward was so relaxed about the situation that his army had been reduced to under 3,000 foot, and Edmund had also left for home. And so in November, Llewellyn chose submission. By the terms of the agreement, two of the four cantrefs went to Dafydd, two to the English. 
All Llewellyn's conquests were removed. The native Welsh lords, with the exception of five minor lords, now owed homage to Edward outside Gwyneth. He had to pay 1,000 marks a year for the privilege of retaining Anglesey, a £50,000 compensation. He could continue to call himself Prince of Wales, but basically, in real terms, he was once again just plain old Prince of Gwyneth. On the 9th of November, Llewellyn agreed to the terms with the English negotiators. On the 10th, he was escorted from Snowdonia to Rudlin, where he met Robert Burnell, and then into the presence of the king, where he threw himself on the king's mercy. Edward could have been worse, though there can be little doubt how far down Llewellyn's throat Edward's generosity would have stuck. Edward let him off the Anglesey rent and the £50,000 fine. But he took Llewellyn back to England, where on Christmas Day, in front of the assembled English magnates, Llewellyn placed his hands in Edward's and promised to serve him obediently. The big question now for the childless Llewellyn was whether he just knuckled under, accepted this new situation, and bided his time for another change in fortune, or whether he should go back to Wales and plan for war. And we'll come to the answer next week. In the meantime, thanks very much to everyone who has commented on iTunes, where there's been a very nice little flurry recently on the UK site, or by email, or on the website, or Facebook. I always look forward to them. And yet again, I am in the happy position of thanking some donators, Michael and Greg. I thought I might start a little tradition of comment of the week or something, but whether I do that or not, I just thought this week I'd mention Sarah, who sent me an email from her cycle ride from Mexico, get this, from Mexico to the bottom of Argentina. I mean, how exciting is that? I personally feel knackered looking at a map of that distance, let alone cycling it. Very impressive, and Sarah, good luck with the cycle ride. Not sure how you're going to manage with the Atlantic on the way back, but I'm sure you'll think of a way. And to all the rest of you, thanks for listening. Good luck and have a great week.